At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Do you stream on a Roku, Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. For the big story on Action News. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco. So great to be here. Joining me in just a moment will be Alice Curran. Alice is a commercialization expert in pharmaceuticals and biotech, and she is also a partner um, at Hogan Lovell's law firm. Um, She'll be with me in just a moment. As always, stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our watch team of on-air contributors. And today you'll be hearing from Sherry Marson for our Lifestyle Watch segment. Uh, You'll also hear from Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President with Comcast. NBC Universal for our military watch, and also from Madeline Bell, CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And for all things related to the show and to see our incredible lineup of guests, you can visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very honored to welcome to the show, Alice Falder Curran. Thank you, Sue. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And am I right that you're joining us from Virginia? Uh, Washington, D.C. Our offices are downtown, and and so I'm right uh, at Metro Center in downtown Washington. Okay. So you're sharing the weather that we have here in Philadelphia. I am. Totally unpredictable. Who knows what's going to happen later today? Um, Listen, I wanted to talk about um, your beginning right off the top. And I know that you shared with me, you were actually born in Virginia, Mm -hmm. but moved to Arizona. Tell me how old you were uh, when you made that move. We moved from Arlington, Virginia to Phoenix when I was five, right before I started first grade um, back in the early 70s. Okay. So five, that's young. Perhaps you don't, do you remember the move? Oh yeah, I definitely remember the move. So um, we didn't have a house yet. And so my mom um, dropped me and my brothers, I told her brothers at her family farm um, outside of Dubuque, Iowa in a little town called Menominee, Illinois. And we stayed with my mom's parents on the farm um, for several weeks while my parents drove out to Arizona, found a house and drove back to pick us up before we moved out in time to start the school year. Wow, that must've been an adventure. It was fun. It was awesome. I mean, it's it's uh, great as a kid to be able to stay on the farm. I remember my grandfather had Tony the Pony. I remember Tony the Pony. Uh, it was a working farm um, with chickens and livestock and crops and all that. And so as a kid, that was really cool and awesome. Is it a place you would then visit frequently? 
We so did. We did go back yeah. periodically. We absolutely yeah. did go back periodically. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't do vacations to some destination. Our vacations, we went to visit family wherever they were. And that definitely included going back to the Midwest to visit my mom's family. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with your dad. I know he um, was also an attorney and mm -hmm. very much influenced your career path. Sure. He was an attorney. Um, he moved out to Phoenix and took the family to Phoenix so that he could join a law firm that one of his college friends and roommates had founded. Um, and he was a plaintiff's contingency fee lawyer, which as a lawyer myself, I have immense respect for because you have to win your cases to get paid. Um, mm -hmm. You're not getting a check every month or every two weeks um, necessarily. You get, you get paid when you win. And he developed a profile in the market around the kind of work he did, but he was also really active in the community um, with nonprofits um, where he really, and my mom as well, really wanted to invest in the community in Phoenix to make it a better place. Uh, he was a trial lawyer. Um, that's uh, something that's a bit of a lost art, um, but he was a trial lawyer, often tried cases. I, I would get to go watch him try cases. Oh, you really did. Good. Oh, absolutely. You that. Wow, that you got to go in and watch him really perform. Totally. Um, and his cases uh, were malpractice cases um, where you had plaintiffs who were injured. Um, and so there was a, a real sense of um, seeking seeking to right a wrong or certainly to get compensation. Those cases don't go to trial very often. They settle often, but um, they were high stakes, right? Because mm -hmm. you would have families that um, definitely needed some compensation to deal with the continued care um, of family members or, or loss, and they were high stakes. Um, so a lot of pressure, um, but he was very successful at it. Um, and certainly a role model in that regard. So your mom, you both your parents were professionals. Your mom was a nurse. My mom was a nurse. Um, yeah. She was nursing at, at, at what where I was born, Arlington Hospital, now known as Virginia Hospital Center. Um, while we lived in Arlington, um, she stopped nursing when we moved out to Phoenix and was a full-time homemaker. Um, but later in life, um, went back to school to get her degree. Um, she started at Phoenix College, um, went to school at night. That's the community college in Phoenix. And then I remember starting when I was in high school, um, started taking the bus out to Arizona State University. That's a long bus ride um, from where we lived in North Central Phoenix all the way out to Tempe, but we had one car. And so she took the bus and my dad had the car and she went out there and managed that. And I remember her writing um, papers on this old antique typewriter we had, um, staying up late at night to do that. And, you know, having been a working mother myself, I, you know, have incredible admiration for what it takes to make that happen, to find the time to do that, mm. to do that on top of, of raising three children. Um, because when she became a nurse back, back in the day, you could become a nurse without a college degree. Um, you went through a nurse's training program that often hospitals sponsored. So that's how she became a nurse. So she wanted a four-year degree because her husband had one and her three kids were going to get one. And, and that's what she did. How old were you when she was doing that? I would say through high school because she graduated, um, at December of my freshman year of college. And I remember having to go and ask um, one of my professors if I could take my exam early because I needed to see my mom go graduate. And that yeah, was pretty so cool. Great. That is pretty so cool. great. I mean, really, what a wonderful example for you as a young girl to watch your mom do that. Totally. Um, you know, and it, and so did, did your mother speak to you about dreams, aspirations, going for, you know, what you want, or did she just kind of lead by example? Um, I think she more led by example. Um, and my dad was the one who always framed things in terms of possibility. That was um, sort of a term of art in our family, so much so that when I was in college, um, I encountered this Emily Dickinson poem um, entitled Possibility. And the first line is, I dwell in possibility. I could probably recite some of it, but not all of it. Um, so he was always the person who I think put into words the notion of what do you view as the possible and how do you make that happen? Mm. And certainly living that out. My mom, in terms of actions, what I would say is um, 
very matter of fact, just getting stuff done. My mom, I think, demonstrated this enormous work ethic, but also just the notion of if you have to learn something new to get it done, you just go learn something new to get it done. I remember when she learned how to refinish furniture, she just decided she was going to go do that. You couldn't go to YouTube to figure out how to do that back in the 70s. Right? Yes. Um, I remember her in the backyard with sandpaper, sanding you know, off the paint of pieces of furniture and learning how to refinish them. And then, but my favorite example is um, my mom decided to run marathons. So yes, think I of- love this story. That was one of my questions. I love this story. So go ahead. So um, think about the seventies for those of you who were around then and the running craze and how everyone was running and jogging. And it was like the new thing to do for exercise and fitness. And my dad was the first one who did that. And he started running and was running 10 Ks and the like. And my mom decided that she wanted to start running, but she had never run before. My dad's father actually had been a track star in college. So, oh, wow. so it was sort of like his thing. And my mom wanted to do it, but she wasn't a runner and she was embarrassed to run on the street. So she started running by running in the alleys behind our house because she was embarrassed to run on the roads of Phoenix. And so and early in the morning, is that right? Early in the, well, in Arizona, certainly in the summer and, and, and the, the, the height of the heat, you need to do it very early yes, or very right. late in the day, right? Because yes, that's the only yes. time that it's possible. Yeah. So it was at all hours, but, but as important that she started in the alleys um, and yeah. she would, until she felt comfortable and confident enough to take it to the streets and she ended up running marathons and she wow. ran sub three and a half hour marathons, which is um, quite a time. Um, and she did it multiple times. She ran the Boston Marathon and, and said it was one of the easier ones she ran simply because, as you note, Sue, if you train in extreme heat, which is what you train in in Arizona, if you're training year round, um, running in cooler weather um, in sort of damp spring Boston can seem extraordinarily pleasant um, compared to training in, in the heat of Phoenix. And so she had that breathing down. She was not going to have any issues with that. That's right. Um, yeah. But just this notion of starting, starting in the alleys of Phoenix and achieving that um, the humility, but also just the um, I'll just figure it out. I'll just figure it out. I'll work yeah. at it and I'll figure it out and make it happen. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, she's a doer. She was a doer. And I, I think that's um, those those people are just incredibly inspirational. Um, so when I think about you growing up and having, you know, the parents that you did and um, you, you shared a lovely picture with me of you as a little girl um, talking about how you had read 100 books. I'm so, a bookworm and I have read 100 books. So that's really important to go to law school to, to have, <laughs> you know, that um, comprehension skill uh -huh. and the ability to read like that. Did you decide young that you were going to follow in your dad's footsteps or did that come later? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. I think certainly by high school, I pretty much figured out I was going to be doing that. I did a lot of speech and debate in high school. Um, I think I benefited from the gene pool in terms of communication skills. That's a strength of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, it always just seemed obvious that that's something that I would do, but I'm not sure I really thought about it in that sort of concrete way until probably high school. Okay. Um, something else, you, you know, I, I love, one of the things I love about this show is, you know, having the conversations about the things that were challenging for us. Mm -hmm. So in spite of the level of leadership that we've reached, it wasn't always smooth sailing. Um, and you brought up with me, you know, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think is interesting, have you seen the TED talk by Amy Cuddy yes. about fake it till you make it? So I, I'd love your thoughts on what, you know, imposter syndrome is one thing and, and, and it's presenting ourselves a certain way, but inside perhaps not feeling that confident yet. And Amy Cuddy's premise is, you know, you, if you go out there and do that, eventually you'll be confident in that action. Mm -hmm. What do you think the difference is? And, and describe for me a little bit about when you were going through that and when and how you were able to overcome it. So for me, the, the example I gave you was when I went to the National Speech and Debate Tournament after my senior year of high school, and I had had to qualify for that by winning various tournaments in Arizona. So you, you would think that I would believe that I belonged there because I had actually won tournaments outright. 
um, and competed in multiple rounds. And it just sort of tells you, uh, I think, where women often are, that despite these clear objective indicia of success and strength and whatever, you still wonder why you're there. And I remember it was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, and I just remember coming up with all these reasons. Well, I'm just, I'm Alice from Arizona. Like, why should I win? Um, and, and literally having to psych myself up between um, matches of, of course, you deserve to be here. Of course, you're good at what you do. Someone has to win. Why can't it be you? Hmm. And, and that worked to some extent. I think it could have worked more. Um, and what I, you know, bring to my thinking around this now, because I think, I, I think everyone would be lying if they said they don't have their, their moments of doubt, um, no matter how far they've come in their career is mm -hmm. um, just to think back objectively, clinically, as someone who is um, a distant observer about the circumstances and say, why are you questioning this? Let's, let's just prepare the objective observation of what skills you bring to bear, why you're entitled to be here, and um, where are you overly focusing on what you aren't doing or what skills you don't have and recognizing that there's no perfect person with all of the skill sets and, and just recognizing, you know, frankly, how you would object, how you would frame it if it was someone else other than you. Um, it's really helpful for me sometimes to think about how would I counsel someone who was in my position if I looked at their qualifications or what they were bringing to bear um, and how would that change my mindset and, and perception of qualifications if it wasn't me sitting in the chair, but rather someone else who had the same mm -hmm. resume or same skill mm -hmm. set? And that usually brings um, some greater objectivity uh, and confidence to the situation. Yeah. And, and would you say even today, you know, you're, you're very well known and an expert in your field. Um, if that old, you know, trickling of doubt creeps in. Is it, I, I love this question. Is, is there a mantra? Is there something you say to yourself to bring you back to the present and, you know, awareness of, of course, you're, you're completely capable in this moment? Yeah. If not me, who else? You know, who else would you put in this position that you actually think is better or more qualified than you to do this very thing right now? Yeah. And I That's think confident. That's a rarely. Rarely is it someone else, someone else who is so clearly superior to you that you would say, yes, they deserve this spot or this opportunity instead of me. Mm. Um, so that's what I try to try to tell myself. And, and usually, I mean, I, I, I find that helpful. Yeah, that's great. That's that's great advice. Um, we're going to go into our first break. Right. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to start with a quote. Stay with us for our watch team, and we will be back with Alice Walder Curran. Hi, this is Sue Rocco. Women to Watch is pleased to share a clip from Breaking Through, a podcast hosted by Madeline Bell the president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. This interview is part of a series in which Madeline interviews CHOPS women scientists about what inspires them and advice they have for other women interested in pursuing science and medicine careers. My guest today is Dr. Susan Firth. In 2021, Dr. Firth was named CHOPS chief scientific officer she is the first woman in CHOP's 166-year history to hold this important role. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Firth to Breaking Through. So, Sue, it's really great to be talking with you today, and it's a topic that I'm very interested in, which is the future of CHOP and science and research and discoveries. But let me say that you are now our chief scientific officer, so how exciting from that girl with the chemistry set yeah. to the woman who is now the leader of our scientific community here at CHOP. And tell me, you've been in the role now for about six months, and tell me a little bit about what your impressions are, what excites you about the role, and what do you see for the next several years? It's a really exciting place to be and an exciting time in science. Since I've been at CHOP now for about 11 years, and with the talent that we have here, our sense of mission with research as our North Star, I think we have the opportunity to transform the medical care we deliver to children. 
To hear more of Madeline's interviews with CHOP's amazing doctors and scientists, listen to Breaking Through with Madeline Bell, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Alice Walter Curran. She is a partner at Hogan Lovells and a commercialization expert in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, I actually, I want to go back for a minute, Alice, because I think there, there um, was a very impactful experience that you had in your life that certainly was challenging and difficult. And um, it enlightened you about um, humans' emotional responses. So you almost lost your son when he was mm-hmm. 17. And I wonder if you can tell us what happened and, and what that taught you. Sure. Um, so my son, all three of my children play soccer. And um, one of my sons was playing a game um, out of state. And my husband had taken him to the game and my parents were in town. So they were with him. And he took either a knee or an elbow to the left temple. I didn't, I haven't watched the video. I won't watch the video. Um, and came out of the game shortly thereafter. And my, my husband knew something was up. Um, so we decided that he would bring him back home. Um, and he texted me that Dozen had been hit in the head um, and he wanted um, to meet me at the hospital. And so they drove back a couple of hours um, and he almost died. Um, it turns out that he had an epidural hematoma. He had a, a what's called a depressed skull fracture. Think of what a doorknob does to a wall when you bang it into it. Um, and they almost missed it because he was young. And so he passed the concussion test. He could walk on his heels and his toes and touch his nose. Um, and really at the last minute, they decided to do a CT scan and they discovered that he had this life-threatening condition. And the reason they almost didn't catch it is precisely because most people are dead by then. Um, or they're certainly not conscious and they're certainly not passing their, their concussion tests. And so they did surgery and they saved it, saved him. Um, and he's, uh, doing, you know, he's fine. Went back to college, the youth, you know, went back to college, graduated, went to college, graduated, has a really wonderful job now. Um, but after that event, I was having crying jags, um, periodically, Mm -hmm. I would just be sobbing. Um, and I remember thinking, why am I crying? My son lived like I have nothing to be upset about or to complain about because I didn't lose my son. I mean, it, it was miraculous. We can have a whole other conversation about the the number of miracles that needed to happen during that day to end with that result. Um, but my husband said to me, you know, you, you really should talk to someone about that. Um, and so I did. I went and I saw a therapist um, who helped with traumatic events and worked with her for a few months. Um, but the number one lesson I took from those sessions was that your emotional response to a situation is the truest response to what is going on around you. And so while I rationally could conclude that my son was fine, um, all was good, it was a traumatic, traumatic event because he almost wasn't okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And that near miss was what my brain fully comprehended, Mm. um, that I had supplemented, supplemented, but like my brain totally got that and it was shattered. Um, and that was when it would come out, when I'd have those crying jags, it was the way of me processing that. And so the lesson, that lesson of your emotional reaction to something is your truest indicator of what's really happening to you has stayed with me precisely because I've been in situations where I don't quite know what to make of what's just happened, but my heart rate is elevated. I'm, I'm unsettled. Um, something seems off and it teaches me whether you consciously can process what just happened, something just happened. That's upsetting to you for one reason or another. And you need to listen to that emotional response rather than power through ignore it, assume it will go away. Um, you know, you need to listen to that wisdom of your emotional response um, because that that is what your body is telling you and you need to listen to it. Mm. You know, as you're describing that, I'm thinking to myself, what we often do is 
we do push those reactions down and we want to control ourselves. And I wonder how much detriment that does to us physically to continually suppress physical and emotional responses to what is going on. Certainly in, in today's world with how much we consume. Hmm. Um, yeah. What do I just wonder, I think about that, you know, because we can't just let ourselves fall apart every minute of every day, but what we're seeing and reading about and knowing we certainly could. Well, I think you deal with it one way or another, whether you realize you do or not. Right. So if you're suppressing it uh, or ignoring it, it's there. Um, and, um, you're, you're not, your body's not ignoring it. And so whether it expresses itself in physical illness um, or in other sort of outsized emotional reactions, which is, you know, what was happening to me, I wasn't processing it until my body forced me to by having me sort of break down into sobs periodically. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you do it in the moment or some other time, it's really your body telling you this is something you need to pay attention to. And it, it goes to this notion I saw in something in the last week, which is this false dichotomy between emotional health or mental health and physical health, and that it really is a false dichotomy and that it, it's, it's health. Um, and yeah. you, have to, you have to address it. But, but I'm glad you asked me about that because I think it's important to acknowledge um, the need for mental health. I mean, and, and mental health support, whatever, whatever, it is that you as an individual have to process the normalization of that mm -hmm. um, and that it's okay to talk about it and say how hard it is and that you need help and that there are people who, who train and that's what their job is and that's what they wanna be able to do. It's important for, I think, women leaders and leaders of all types to be open about that uh, and normalize it. Absolutely, and for our children as well. Totally. Boys, girls, men, women, you know, everyone, because, and I think we're doing that much more openly today than we did when we were growing up. Yeah, certainly. totally, totally. You know? And I'm always envious of, you know, I married into an Italian family and what they do really well is they let it all out. <laughs> <laughs> it's out there. What's happening. And I think the Irish kind of keep it more closer to the vest and it's probably healthy to whatever your emotions are, say it, let it out. It's probably Well, better. it's real. I mean, and that's something I yeah. learned from my mom was um, recognize the real and the normal in all of us, um, regardless of their title, regardless of where they are in life. Um, being able to connect with people on a human level, on a real level, um, you'll always be able to, to have a conversation with someone if you, if you just recognize that humanity in the other person. Absolutely. And I would imagine that benefits you as a leader in your field, in the professional world, that acknowledgement and validation of a person in front of you, if it's your employee or, an, or a client, um, always leads to opportunities. You know, it. Yeah, just just um, meeting them where they are, um, yeah. yes. uh, regardless of what their role is, um, their seniority or not. Mm -hmm. um, the significance of their role or not, mm -hmm. um, and just engaging with them as another person who has a job to do and your interests are aligned. So how do you uh, come together in a partnership to work out a problem? Yeah. Um, I, have, I have a quote. You said, my greatest personal triumph was having the courage to say no. When and how did that happen? A few different ways, I'd say. Um, I'll give, I'll give an example from college. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier in this segment, did a lot of debate in high school. Um, and I did that again when I was in college. And when I was in college, one debate season, I was partnered with a gentleman um, who um, was a bit of a bully. Um, and at some point during that season, I said, I'm just not going to work with you anymore. Um, you know, I'm not going to tolerate um, the verbal abuse, um, the lack of support, the sort of pushing me around. I'm just going to say no. Um, and part of that's about self-worth and sort of coming around to the point of saying, what, what am I doing here? Like, why am I engaging with this? 
yeah. person. Um, and so I did say no. And we were supposed to go to a tournament. And I didn't. I said, we're not going to go to the tournament. I'm not going to go with you. Um, he insisted that I give him the plane tickets so that he could go with someone else. And I wouldn't give him the plane tickets because they weren't his property. They were the property of the school. Um, he tried banging down my door. I had to call security. Um, yeah, a lot of that. Um, so it was, it was kind of scary. Um, but, but I also feel like in those moments where you have a moment of clarity where I'm just not going to do that. Um, I often think that the best signal of whether that's the right decision is how do you feel once you've made that decision? Mm. And I know it's been the right decision when my body just relaxes. Yes. That, that the anxiety or tension I have about a situation I'm navigating um, that if, if I make that decision and I say, you know, I'm not going to do that. And then it's like the wisdom of the body and the body tells you, yeah, that's the right, that is the right call. I'm, I'm impressed that you learned that in college, because I think it takes a, a lot of women a very long time. Certainly the older we get, the less we are concerned about, I, I would say just, you know, if, if there's something that we're uneasy about, we're, we're able to walk away and say, no, um, we get wiser. Mm-hmm. But you, you learned that in college. Well, I don't know that I really learned it in college, but I started experimenting with it well, in you college. Must have, you, remember, you remember that experience. So it was impactful. It was definitely know? impactful. It was hard because I think, you know, you go along, you're sort of carried along with a process or there's an expectation about how things are going to go and really focusing on what's right for you um, in your life, in your career, in your circumstances, only you can decide that. And it might not be what everyone else does. Mm. Um, and having the courage and the confidence to say, I know what's best for me. I know it's best for my career path. Um, I will figure out a way to make it work for me. Um, that can feel lonely. Um, but you know, bet on yourself as, as a leader, I've, you, you, you work with a bunch of team members, you see them progress, and there'll be people on your team. And I've said this to... At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Team members, I will bet on you every day of the week because I've seen you perform. I know that you're going to be successful. Like, I, I would I would put money on that bet because I can see you perform. And I, I I've said to myself in the past, why am I not betting on myself? Like if, if I look at my track record, what I can bring, what I can do, um, I should bet on myself more um, and, and be comfortable and confident in that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about your career and your work as mm -hmm. a commercialization expert in the yeah. pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, explain what that is for the viewers that you know might not be familiar. Sure. And so it, in the industry, it's often known as market access. And it's basically about um, once you have a product approved, how do you actually take it to market? Um, how do you distribute it? Um, how do you price it? How do you contract it? When you say product, is that always a drug? A drug or biological. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. That's exactly what I mean. Um, so, and, and it's about all of the, the ways that um, a manufacturer wants to make sure that patients can access this product. I mean, there's all this enormous time and effort that it takes to finally get a product over the mm -hmm. finish line and approved for a particular use. And then you actually want to make sure that people can access it. Um, and there are a lot of operational issues that go into that, just the nuts and bolts of getting agreements in place, um, having programs out there to support patients um, with their out-of-pocket expense or if, if they're lower income and they don't have insurance, or just making sure that they understand um, how a particular drug fits into the overall regimen for their treatment. So, so they're sort of patient-facing, they're sort of the mechanical, how do you get agreements in place? Um, and then there's a lot around how do you price it? Um, and there's a lot of regulatory requirements um, that go into how you price your product and pricing data that the government has to, you have to give the government on a periodic basis. Um, and that's really where I started my career was in these drug pricing laws. Um, but to be able to work with companies around these pricing requirements, I had to learn about how they commercialize products because all the different ways that you commercialize products have to be accounted for in these prices that you report to the government. And so through this angle of understanding these pricing laws, I've really learned the, be the beginning and end of the, the cycle of how you bring a product to market. Um, and that's just been really interesting to me because I, like my clients, were all about making sure that we change patients' lives and we help them with these therapies that you bring to market um, to cure or, or create palliative care or other treatments. Um, and it does no one any good if it can't get to market. And so that's, yeah. that's what I help um, companies with. Yeah. I, I feel as though when, when we watch television, we're seeing um, advertisements for um, drugs more than ever. Um, and I think one of the things, you know, as just consumers, um, we have a lot of questions, I would say, around drugs and specifically since COVID, mm -hmm. you know, what should I be taking? What should I not? What am I doing? First of all, have you been incredibly busy, much more busy since COVID in the work that you do? And how has it changed your work? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that COVID has impacted my practice so much as changed it for some because, um, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, therapies that have come to the market in the United States uniquely and first um, to address either COVID treatment or with the vaccines. And I think um, it's important that people re recognize that there's a reason why the United States, I think, had access to vaccinations and treatments before the rest of the market. And it's because we have the leading uh, manufacturing base and innovation base, I think, worldwide in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, and that's why we in this country had access before others did. Um, and so there were some interesting challenges around how do you get products to market so quickly? Um, how do you get access so quickly? In this case, it didn't go through commercial um, channels. It went through the government, right? The government ended up just buying in and giving it out to folks. So it were some different models, as I think uh, what we saw during COVID because of the need for speed. Um, and getting these life-saving um, therapies and interventions with vaccines um, into people's hands so quickly. Yeah, it's it's such a um, it's such a dance because of course you don't ever want to do anything in medicine too quickly. Of course not. But if you delay, you know, and people get sick, um, in this area, do you find do you, are you very excited and fulfilled in the work or do you see down the road ever going into a different arena with your legal um, expertise? No, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a pharma biotech lawyer for life, I would say. Okay. Um, what is so exciting is to see these cell and gene therapies that are coming on the market today that literally are cures and biblical in nature. I mean, when you, when you read about 
these products that um, literally cure uncurable diseases where um, patients before these therapies were either going to move to palliative care or um, you know, had a defined life expectancy because there was treatment but no cure. And to see the, the products that have already come to market, but the pipeline of products that are expected to come to market um, is really incredible. And all the credit to that goes to the science um, and the investment in the science. Um, and so to be able to to play the, the tiniest sliver of a role at the very end to work with these innovators um, to make sure that these products make it to the patients who need them most is really fulfilling. And, and, and I mean the tiniest sliver of a role, but even that is incredibly rewarding. Well, a big, I would say you play a big role because again, you're assisting in allowing these, um, these therapies to come to market. And we, gosh, there is a lot, I'm, I'm always reading particularly about um, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. um, and, and cancer and, you know, what's out there and what's coming. And it's incredible. It's, it's, it's incredible. It is incredible. Um, but again, I, first and foremost, the science and the investment in the science. Um, and, you know, based in Philadelphia, there's a lot of that um, in your area in particular. Um, it's, it, people wouldn't have dreamed of this um, even a decade ago. Right. It's, it's, that, it's that epic of a change. Yeah. But listen, I so much appreciate your taking time out of your day to come share your story and, and a little bit about the work you're doing. Um, great conversation. I wish you continued success. Thank you, Sue. It's been my pleasure. Stay with us for our watch team and I'll be right back. There's a moment every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared, shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment, and it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Now, the women to watch, military watch. Fewer than half of eligible veterans use the VA health benefits they are entitled to. But those who do use the VA, more than 80% of veterans are satisfied with the VA care. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. Now, you may be asking, why should this matter to me? I share this with you because most of our listeners have some connection to the veterans in their community and may have the opportunity to share information about this new VA benefit. The VA has just launched the PACT Act, which is the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics, which is the most significant expansion of veteran benefits and care in more than three decades, empowering the VA to help millions of toxic-exposed veterans and their survivors. The PACT Act expands VA health care and benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits, Agent Orange, and many other toxic substances. The PACT Act adds to the list of health conditions that the VA presumes are caused by exposure to these substances. This law helps the VA provide generations of veterans and their survivors with the care and benefits they've earned and deserve. The PACT Act is the least we can do for the countless men and women who suffered toxic exposure while serving their country, said President Biden during the PACT Act bill signing ceremony. It means access to life insurance, home loan insurance, tuition benefits, and help with health care. So what can you do? Simply refer those veterans you know to va.gov and tell them to search the PACT Act to learn more. Welcome to the Lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Karen Jarrett, founder and executive director of the Resource Exchange at 1800 North American Street in Philadelphia. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. 
Through our conversation, I learned that Karen is a true blue Philadelphian. Karen, please tell us a little bit about where you're from and your education. Uh, well, I was actually born in Delaware, but spent most of my youth in Philly and then finally got to come to college in Philly and went to the U University of the Arts, which was Philadelphia College of Art back then and uh, went and majored in painting and fine arts. And uh, then sort of after graduation, started trekking around the country a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, after graduation, you did some traveling and ended up on the West Coast for a bit from what you said. Tell us a little bit about your time there. Yep. Uh, New York and then Portland and then San Francisco. Um, so, yeah. And uh, so San Francisco is a beautiful place. Good home away from home if you're not in Philly. <laughs> um, so uh, I was a, um, a bookstore um, manager and a, and did a lot of other um, creative endeavors and then found my way back home. Uh, what was supposed to be a two year trip to San Francisco turned to 10 years. So, oh my so goodness. Yeah. Pretty big difference. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. what was the driving decision to bring you back to Philadelphia? Uh, I missed home. I missed East Coast. I'm an East Coast gal. So um, I missed uh, fast talking and, you know, stuff to do and real weather and thunderstorms and fireflies and, you know, all of that. So it was time for me to come home. Yeah. And you came home and you did a carpentry apprenticeship and large scale scenery painting and classes. And you worked at the Walnut Street Theater, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I apprenticed at the Walnut um, for a while in carpentry and then ended up as a scenic painter there. And then um, also worked at the Arden as a scenic painter for a while and then eventually made the hop over to film. Ah, yeah, I jumped into the film industry. That sounds, it sounds like what you do is a lot of fun, especially for people who like the entertainment industry. Um, please tell us a little bit about some of the films you worked on. Uh, well, pretty much if it's been shot in Philadelphia in, in the past, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years, we've, you know, either me as a scenic or later when I started the organization, we've had some sort of hand in it. Um, a lot of M. Night Shyamalan movies. Uh, the first movie I worked on was Invincible. Uh, and the last one was Lovely Bones. Ah, both good films. Yeah. So um, when you came back to Philly um, from San Francisco, you said you had an idea based on a store there called Scrap. Was that what sparked your interest for the foundation for the resource exchange? Uh, yeah, Scrap is sort of the first creative reuse center in the country. Um, they were they were the beginning of it all. And uh, most of my artist friends and myself sourced all of our materials from there. It was a wonderful place, still is a wonderful place. Uh, and when I moved back to Philly, I thought, oh, I wish there was one here. And then I eventually ended up starting one. <laughs> so that's fantastic. So the resource exchange, in, uh, you started in 2009, but you really didn't open to the public until 2011. And um, what I what everybody needs to understand is it's not an architectural salvage warehouse. You are the source for the artist or the maker's materials, meaning for artists, crafters, all of you who like to do the do-it-yourself projects, homeowners, builders, local businesses. I mean, anybody can go down here and find supplies. Um, the, the mission of the Resource Exchange is to provide the inspiration and reclaim materials for creative and environmentally resourceful making, teaching, and living. Can you give us some examples of the items you have at the Resource Exchange? It's a, a 5,000 square foot plus space that has everything from glitter to two by fours in it. Um, art supplies and fabric remnants and building materials and props and, and things from, from film and theater sets. It's, it's kind of more what we don't have. Um, like a lot of reclaimed material uh, outlets and retail places, we have a, um, a wide variety of things. We don't save clothing. Um, but that's kind of the main, the main category that we don't take. So, and we focus, our focus is really on maker materials, things that you can use to make and create or fix or repair or decorate, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. That's very cool. I, I could have used you uh, a few weeks ago, <laughs> getting ready for Christmas. I'm, I'm the queen of Michael's sometimes, which I don't like going to, but I do. Yeah. Um, I, I did see on your website, you have an extensive list of examples of things you will accept and um, accept and not accept. Most importantly, donors should not bring in boxes of random items for the exchange to sort through. Um, items need to be in good working order, not broken or damaged, like art supplies, the paints can't be dried or brushes damaged. 
items need to be sorted and in categories. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on how you like things to come in? And are most of them donated? Uh, yeah, everything that we take is donated. We don't purchase anything. And uh, the reason why we kind of we sort of screen more than most reclaim material places because our mission is environmental. So what we're really trying to do is guarantee that the things that we take in are actually reusable. Um, we don't sort of have, you know, a, a colander approach where we take everything in and whatever doesn't, you know, doesn't work or is broken. We just have a dump. There's no dumpster out back to just to right. discard what is it. So and it's also a good way for us to talk to donors um, and to be able to help them to refer them to the correct places to take things that maybe aren't reusable, but that they're, you know, they can be recycled or that there might be better places to take them. So um, so that's why we kind of make sure that we know what's coming through the door. Yeah, that's great. Um, and you also have a gallery consisting of some of the pieces of art or items artists create from the exchange materials or have been repurposed or recycled. Are the gallery hours the same as the shop hours? And is it is it pretty popular? I mean, do a lot of people come in and just to see the gallery? Yeah, the gallery is open the same as the shop and that was intentional. We just designed it so that it was concurrent with regular shop hours because we really wanted to have the, the art um, that was focused for people to from all walks of life to see it. So it's not just a, a gallery setting where people are purposefully going to look for art, but they will stumble upon it. They'll come in, you know, be looking for two by fours or looking for a lamp or or just coming to browse materials and then they'll they'll come across it and maybe be inspired in a way that they hadn't hadn't, you know, originally intended. So mm -hmm. and it's free and open to the public every day that we're open. Mm -hmm. And do you ever have special gallery events or classes or do you lease out the space for events of any type? We do. We have um, receptions and, and a lot of creative reuse workshops um, during the pandemic. A lot of that, of course, like most organizations, slowed some. Um, but now we're getting back up and running to be able to have um, maker workshops again. Yeah. Uh, and I asked about your celebrity encounter. What are some of the more notable items from movies or shows you've had for sale at the exchange? Well, we have the train car from White Christmas from the Walnut Street Theater that we've moved to every location we've had. <laughs> maybe, much to the, maybe much to the dis to dis dismay of the volunteers who helped us move it. It's a big steel and, and wood train car. Um, we have a subway from a movie set. Um, uh, we have all kinds of stuff. Although, you know, I, I sometimes find it more memorable what people do with what they you know, find there than what we have. Because just there's just so much, so many great props from so many films over the last decade or so. Oh, I can imagine. So this was such a natural transition for you, working behind the scenes, creating sets, and then breaking them down and seeing the massive amount of waste. Um, and it's just not movie and show sets. It's sporting events, social and nonprofit events. It can be signage with directions, parking, rules for visitors. Um, but companies and people don't have the space to store or don't want to put in the effort to find another use of many of the items. It, it is really, really wasteful. I mean, some of those things are made of plastic that wouldn't wouldn't go anywhere for a billion years. So yeah. it's it's sad to think that it would go in a landfill. We don't want to have anything going in landfills. No, bad landfills, bad landfills. <laughs> um, I repurpose things all the time. I love finding items and creating something I know I will love or somebody I know will love. Like I like to do flower arrangements. I saw a very cool uh, leather top hat um, box on your site in the items for sale. And that would be perfect to put flower, a flower arrangement in. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I love to do. Um, you're Philadelphia's Creative Reuse Center. So do you have certain items that are more popular than others? I think what people most know us for is the um, art and craft and textile, you know, the sort of more, more what you would think of when you think of art and craft materials. And then as you mentioned, a lot of the film and theater set pieces. Um, but it's a pretty big range and it's, it's part of the discovery for us to see just, you know, what people can find and repurpose in a way that we hadn't thought of. So we have all kinds of people that come, artists and teachers and contractors come and just maybe a homeowner looking for a lamp from a set, you know, so it's pretty broad. Yeah. Yeah. I took, uh, some, um, cabinets that I found yeah. and, uh, turned them into a kitchen Island. I, I put them in a T shape and put on a uh, granite top and, and I had a really nice four foot square island that I can seat eight people. It's awesome because <laughs> my kitchen's not very big. 
I've interviewed a number of people in the last few months, like the Bucks County Playhouse. They would probably be a really good source for you to give things and also take some things that they could use for some of their sets and scenery. And I would think that any school for their drama programs, family, consumer science teachers, art teachers, mm -hmm. event planners, um, they're always looking for props and material. Do you, do you advertise at all to these different places or is this something you need help with? We're largely word of mouth. We're very small budget nonprofit. So, um, but we've been around for over a decade now. So I think people are, we're sort of a, the go-to hub now for, for folks who are looking for reclaimed material specifically. Um, now that people are becoming more environmentally conscious, I think it's, it's a lot of people would prefer to try to find things and not buy things new when they can. So um, we're slowly becoming, you know, a, a much more well-known place, even without a, a huge marketing budget. <laughs> right. Right. And it, does, it doesn't always take a, a large marketing budget to do a good job getting the word out. It's just having the right network. Um, you won the Business and Arts Partnership Award from the Arts and Business Council Greater Philadelphia for saving materials for creative reuse. And you also make sure any items that can't be reused are recycled rather than being wasted and sent to landfill. You have a, you've partnered with Revolution Recovery, which has two plants, one in Philadelphia and one in Newcastle, Delaware. And then Philadelphia Airport was the also, was the other winner um, that won for um, combining their efforts with uh, artists. The Philadelphia International Airport and lo local artists and organizations um, have combined forces and they display a lot of different artists um, there at the airport. Uh, are there any other partnerships that you have well, first, I just big shout out to Revolution because they've we've worked with them for a really long time, and they they are just an incredible business that saves a great deal from landfill. A lot of construction. It's their their specialty is um, C and D debris, con construction and demolition debris. So, if folks don't know about them, you should check them out. Um, and uh, we've been in the same we've been in the river wards the entire time. We've moved several times, but we are um, very much kind of wed to this this section of the city. We serve everyone, but a lot of our partnerships come from the, you know, Kensington and Fishtown and uh, this whole northern part of the city. Um, so, yeah. Well, you, you provide a, a plethora of information on your, your website, uh, like the resource Philly map. That's fantastic. That answers, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. that answers a lot of questions for people who want to make sure things go to the right place other than a landfill by having items listed and then you have it on the map of suggested places for them to check out of where those items could go. Um, does that map seem to, or do people just still call you anyway? <laughs> it, well, it seems like a great resource. It's a huge part of what we do because so many people bring so many different kinds of materials to us. And, uh, and that actually is another partnership that we have, which was the city of Philadelphia itself. So uh, they took, um, our map and also and then broadened it, it made it interactive and so that's now part of the city's resource um, finder map on their website for people to be able to find out where to take things um, and so a lot again a lot of what we do is trying to make sure whatever comes to our door we do the best we can to to send folks out with exactly where they need to take it. is it e-waste this is where to take it is it you know is this just recycling this is what you can put curbside and what you can't you know that and that sort of thing so we we kind of have a, a lot of environmental stewardship built into the regular, you know, retail aspect of what we do as well. Well, one of the messages that has resonated for most of the lifestyle segments I've done is cooperation. Um, we are much more effective when the arts team up and support the cause or a business, um, whether gun violence, keeping kids off the streets and teaching them skills, recycling, bringing local artwork into a restaurant or hotel or public place, it's beneficial for all. Art gives all of these organizations a voice. So it's really great service that you provide. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, Karen, thank you for your time and for doing so much to help the city of Philadelphia become sustainable, more sustainable, and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me have a chance to talk about what we do. Our pleasure. For more information about Karen and the resource exchange, if you would like to donate and make a material or monetary donation, purchase something at the store, visit the gallery, or get involved, go to www.theresourceexchange.org. Thank you again for joining us today. Sue will be right back to close out the show. Ladies, keep living your dreams. Action News, celebrating 50 years with AccuWeather. 
Over the last five decades, our winters have been getting warmer due to climate change. In Philadelphia, our average winter temperature is up five degrees. And we're breaking more record highs than lows. Thanks for always trusting us to keep you informed. 50 Years of AccuWeather is sponsored by Independence Blue Cross. Choose coverage you can count on with the region's strongest network. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, for 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Go to get your game on. Go for the beers. Go for the cheers. Go for the hit and the hits. Go for the stakes and the stakes. Go to get your parlay on. Go to get your party on. Go for the scene. Go for the screens. Go for the gallery. Go for the win. Go to Ocean. Visit theoceanac.com to plan your visit. There's a moment every hour, every day, every week. These moments shape our world. They add color, perspective, and sometimes pain. Moments are meant to be shared. Shared by friends, family, people you trust. At Action News, we cherish every moment. And it's our profound responsibility to bring you closer to your world. Never miss a moment. Trust the people at Action News. Do you stream on a Roku, a Fire Stick, Google TV, or Apple TV? Now you can watch 6ABC 24-7 with the 6ABC Philadelphia streaming app. Watch Action News Live. And the big story on Action News. Plus special programming, breaking news, and severe weather updates. Tremendous amounts of rain. Always on. Always the news team you trust. Watch 6ABC 24-7 on your streaming device. Search 6ABC Philadelphia and start streaming today. That is it for another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Next week, my guest will be Jill Singer. She is a vice president of national security for AT&T. Should be a great show. Thank you, as always, to Kateri, our producer, for doing such a great job, and all of our sponsors and watch team members. Have a great week, everyone. We are CHOP. And we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first of its kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center, We have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries.
Meeting these challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.